it is endless in Georgia. There is a massive push among the Democrats to rally for John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock Tuesday are the runoffs, okay? A critical, critical scenario for the Democrats in the Senate. Uh, joining us to discuss, we're very pleased to uh, track him down, uh, is Bill Chiaccio. He's a reporter with WSB Radio, 95.5 Atlanta's News and Talk. Atlanta, Georgia, an amazing city and the epicenter of, uh, of basically the political planet right now. Bill, thanks for making the time to do this. I appreciate it. No problem, Greg. Yeah, how are things down there? Uh, everything's uh, going fine. Uh, we actually just found out today um, that uh, uh, President-elect Joe Biden will be making another trip to Georgia to campaign on behalf of Reverend Warnock and Mr. Ossoff on the day before uh, the election on Tuesday. And then uh, that, uh, he'll be joining President Trump, who was already planning to visit Georgia on Monday as well. Now, this is a fascinating thing. So, um, you know, to play it absolutely straight up the middle, which I think we should, I'd ask whether whether the Republicans and whether Kelly Leffler, whether David Perdue, do they want Trump there? Do most Republicans see him still as an asset, as a positive to come and speak at a rally uh, on Monday night? Or could it hurt the cause in the least? Yeah, that's that's the big question here, um, because, you know, there's been a lot of infighting among Republicans here. Uh, President Trump has bashed our Republican governor numerous times uh, because he lost the state in the presidential election. He's also blasted uh, uh, the elections officials here who have been counting the votes. So it's very interesting dynamic as far as President Trump coming here. But uh, Leffler and Purdue have has have steadfastly continued to support President Trump. When it comes to that, yeah, Leffler maybe more so. Does it feel like she's more a, a Trump disciple um, than, than Purdue on the other side? Well, it's very interesting on Leffler. They, they both are strong supporters of the president, but it's interesting because uh, Leffler was actually appointed. She has not won mm -hmm. uh, an election here in this state. She was appointed by Governor Brian Kemp, who uh, has been at odds with President Trump over the whole uh, election process in Georgia. So she's an appointee of Brian Kemp, who has now uh, been at the ire of President Trump. But uh, Leffler, yes, she has uh, been a, a big supporter of President Trump the, the whole time. I'd, I'd ask you, are there hardcore Republicans that look at the scenario with Leffler and say, you know what, uh, we could really use somebody with more experience, somebody that doesn't polarize as much. Um, th th there's no doubt there's a Republican base, uh, regardless of what Donald Trump does, Bill. But uh, is she seen as more a negative than a positive, even among the base? Or, or does she have her, her absolute uh, fanboys and fangirls out there? No, it's very interesting because she actually had to win a, a primary and beat a more highly established Republican who's been around Georgia for a long time, uh, Congressman Doug Collins, who is also a big supporter of President Trump. So she defeated him in a statewide uh, prim in a primary to get here. So uh, that, that's your Republican establishment. Obviously, enough Republicans thought well enough of Leffler uh, to uh, vote her in over Doug Collins. The attention that, that the state has got and the attention that these races ha have got because because of how it, it went in the Senate and went in the in the presidential election for a long, long time. It's probably pretty unprecedented, all told. I mean, Jimmy Carter came from Georgia, and we're living in a very, very different era than and we were. You know, I don't want to give anything away, but I know you and I were both little, little kids back then. Um, do we look and say that this is the most attention George has ever got on a national scale? Uh, yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, it's been a long time. 1992 was the last time that the Democrats won a presidential race here. So certainly the tide has changed. And 
ordinarily you would say that the Republicans would be heavy favorites in these two runoffs. But right now, the way the political climate is in Georgia, it is anybody's race. Hillary Clinton was was relatively trounced there. And she obviously that, that's a state that Biden made up in addition to to some of the Rust Belt states, Michigan, Wisconsin. He brought those back, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, when, when polls when, when polls closed, what was the expectation? I think all of us looked from afar and thought, well, Donald Trump will still win Georgia. The, the, yeah. That morning you woke up in early November. Did it feel that way to you? Yeah, he was well ahead, but uh, a lot of the votes that were still coming in were the early v- people that voted early and people that uh, sent in absentee ballots. And President Trump, as you might know, uh, was really against voting early. He wanted people to come out and vote on Election Day. And a lot of those ballots then that were counted later in Georgia were all coming in for Joe Biden. And that's what put uh, Biden over the top. It's interesting. The dynamic that's really changed in Georgia is the the suburbs of Atlanta. They Mm. have really become a Democratic stronghold the last couple of uh, election cycles. And they have really carried carried Joe Biden uh, this election. And that's what the Democrats are hoping for in these runoffs as well. We're speaking with Bill uh, Chiaccio from WSB Radio, 95.5 Atlanta's News and Talk. It's a fascinating Tuesday night. Uh, the Georgia Senate runoffs go. It'll get record-breaking attention. And and the numbers, the percentages are, are obviously greater, aren't they, for uh, you know the mail-in ballots and the early in-person voting for these two races than it even was for the presidential election. We know that the midterm elections, uh, the turnout is never the same in none of the 50 states when, when president isn't on the ballot. Right. And we've already had more than 2.3 million people vote early for this election of the 7 million uh, voters in the state of Georgia. And those will tend to uh, uh, sway toward the Democrats. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see how if the Republicans make, can make up some ground on Election Day. Really, really appreciate you uh, setting us straight, Bill. Uh, and have a great New Year's. And uh, it's right back at it, I'm sure, uh, all through the weekend with all the attention uh, and Tuesday night, the massive night. Thanks for sharing some, uh, some expertise up here in Canada. We appreciate it. You got it, Greg. Bill Chiaccio from WSB Radio 95.5 Atlanta's News and Talk. Uh, we wanted way earlier in the week, uh, and the week is flying by, to get to the uh, the concern about Duffins Creek. Uh, that's close to my heart, but I know there are people in Ontario who've seen stories about the wetlands. Uh, there have been there's been a push through by the provincial government. Uh, some have been encouraging the progress of building. Some have been discouraged uh, by what it's doing uh, to the environment. Uh, and on the line to discuss is the mayor of Ajax, uh, who's been outspoken on this issue. He is Mayor Sean Collier. Uh, Mayor Collier, thanks very much for making the time again for me. I appreciate it. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll we'll go to that issue. I know I, I want to give it plenty of time, and, I, and it's not that I want to get this initial part out of the way, uh, but you are the mayor of Ajax. The MPP for Ajax is Rod Phillips. I know you know Rod well. I consider him to be a, a popular you know, member of provincial parliament. I consider you to be a popular mayor. I wanted you to have the opportunity to weigh in on his trip. It is generating a lot of anger to me among constituents. Have you heard from constituents upset about it as well? Well, uh, I thought we were going to talk about the uh, the MZO, but I'll, I'll answer this one. I have not received anything directly regarding that. No, uh, I, ha- I have seen quite a bit of um, comment on social media. Do, do you not? Do you have a reaction to the to him doing this, as in approving it or disapproving of it? Well, I mean, I my messaging has always been very clear, and that's stay home. I personally have canceled three trips this year and, and had a quiet Christmas with my family and. New Year's Eve will be just Rose and I. 
So, yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed because I've been trying to sort of lead by example, and I expect the same from our upper levels of government. Okay. Did you, I, you didn't think that was an unfair question, did you? No, 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 not uh, at all. Uh, I absolutely expected that question today. I, I, yeah, I, I would have thought so uh, because I've, I've seen you in news conferences. We've interviewed before, and, uh, and, and I, I like the fact that you bring stuff straight and, and sometimes uh, quite blunt in, in terms of being honest. So I definitely wanted to get to this issue with the TRCA, with the developers in Pickering. You know, I mentioned it earlier about environmental concerns uh, about it. And, um, you know, like it's, it's really one thing and it's another uh, to talk about the approval of um, coming for these particular wetlands. But, you know, w- when you've heard from people who live in Ajax, in Pickering, they love the outdoors. And I would argue they've had a relationship with the outdoors that's been enhanced and increased in 2020 because of the lack of other things to do. It's a great place to live and it's a great place to walk around. And they've been they've been utilizing them even more than probably in years previous. Absolutely. They have. Yeah, this was one that really came out of the blue. when In May, when we first were, and we weren't even notified until we heard about it from the province. So this went from Pickering directly to the province. We were not advised. When we found out about it, I mean, we, as, as you know, as I believe you're an Ajax resident mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. we, we've been battling this for at least the last three years since the Durham Live name ever came on. As far as the potential traffic issues, Church Street, as you know, is a boundary road. Bailey Street um, is already at capacity. Uh, and, and the... Really, the consulting and everything as far as how to manage the traffic has really never been done on this site. Then, of course, last year there was a couple of Committee of Adjustment meetings held where they changed the trip count, which allowed them instead of opening 1,000 slots on day one to open to full capacity over 3,000. So there's been some things that have been happening and really pushing this through, and we already had these major concerns on just the casino site alone. So when they came out with this MZO, for up to 4 million square feet of commercial space and 1,500 residential units, which is about four 25-story towers, obviously that gave us more concern. And, and we, we pushed back, and, and as, as we should. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And I think uh, I think it's gotten a lot of applause that you've done that. By the way, we're speaking with Sean Collier, who's the mayor of the town of Ajax. You're quoted in the Globe and Mail article from earlier in the week. Uh, that warehouse could go anywhere. We have hundreds of acres available. And that was what a lot of the residents that I spoke to said about it, is that there are, are, are other spots. If you could magically pick up the Durham Live project and plant it down somewhere, would it, would it go west? Would it go east? Um, where is the best place for it if where it is right now? was not at, at first the best place for it well there's currently an application less than a kilometer away on on uh, lands in ajax but we have all sorts of applications in ajax pickering has all sorts of lands they received a number of acres of land from the province uh, up by the 407 their their technology corridor they have all kinds of land where this could go and to to you know pave over a 57 acre provincially significant wetland is not the way to do it. And not only asking for the approvals, but the provincial government going and not bending the rules, but changing the legislation and the laws and overriding the safeguards that are in this conservation authorities, but also in the Places to Grow Act and every other piece of legislation to make this happen is just ridiculous. And I pleaded with our MPP to remove Section 6 um, of Bill 229, the budget bill, which passed on December the 10th, um, and as did over 20,000 residents that sent emails to the province, as did uh, two Indigenous chiefs regarding the, the, treat, the treaty lands that these are on, as did every conservation authority in the province, as did most of the regions in the province, including the region of Durham, 
And finally, I also brought this to the Ontario Big City Mayors, which is made up of the 29 of us mayors that represent 100,000 populations or more. And it was passed nearly unanimously with Rod Phillips at that meeting and Steve Clark at that meeting. So, I mean, the message was sent very, very, very clearly, very, very, very strongly. Um, And as far as provincial significant wetlands go, this wetland, I know from reading up on it, has, I think it's 41 distinct plant and animal species that are that are need to be protected but when it comes to the scoring of this wetland i believe anything when they do the scoring over a 200 makes it provincially significant Mm -hmm. and a perfect score to my understanding is 250 and this piece of property scored at 250. what was the what was the correspondence back that's unbelievable that what was the correspondence back from minister phillips since you mentioned you reached out to him what was his response um well, it was a Zoom call, and I'd sent a few letters without response, so I arranged a Zoom call finally, and the answer was, um, thank you for your comments. I'll take it under advisement, I believe. Okay. Should MZOs even, uh, Mayor Collier, should MZOs even be um, permitted? Look, the Conservatives aren't the first government to to utilize them, not for the environment, but it, it almost feels like you're you're breaching the public trust. You're, you're breaching local trust in the provincial government for even, even allowing them. And again, I, I'm sure the Liberals used MZOs numerous times in 15 years of, 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 uh, of, having, the, of having Queen's Park uh, under control. Well, they didn't use them very many. I think it was like eight over their 15 years. But, okay. Um, I, I always support MZOs. I think they absolutely have a time and a place and, and are needed in some cases. And I'll use Ajax as an example. In June, we requested and received an MZO for a much-needed long-term care facility that, that just to cut the red tape and get things moving on it. There are, and this was on a piece of property that was not a wetland, that was not significant, that, but would have had to go through another two to three years through the municipal comprehensive review to make it happen. So in that case, I think, yes, they're justified. But unfortunately, just the, the way they're done now, it leaves it open to abuse. And, you know, I, I got to say, this is probably the poster child for that. Um, you know, even with all the pushback and all the outrage, it, this was just a, a done deal right from the start. When we met with them at Queen's Park back in July 13th, um, we were pretty mm-hmm. much told then it was a done deal. So, I mean, that, that to me, is just it takes away the entire public process. It takes away the entire appeal process. Just let me give you a little quick. All the things that we were talking about all the way through about the traffic issues and the environmental issues and everything else on that plate, which are clearly documented. They're no-brainers. We have an application just across the road on Church Street on the old Annandale lands that we did a rezoning for back on December the 13th, I believe it was. Sorry, December the 7th. And those lands are not environmentally sensitive. We worked with the TRCA. The TRCA was even at our meeting and expressed how satisfied they were with the process and how supportive they were with the rezoning. Two appeals have been filed on that application, one from the city of Pickering, and one from the Durham Live proponents stayed in the exact same traffic and every other objection we had on their proposals. Right. So the hypocrisy is so thick here. It's just it's unbelievable. And the difference is they've got an MZO on a provincially significant wetland, and the Conservation Authorities Act has been changed through Bill 229, and that's been rammed through and effective immediately, not even a phased-in approach with no consultation, and they can go ahead and build but they can hold up a development on our lands that aren't subject to all these things through a long and probably prolonged uh, LPAT appeal. 
how, how difficult during a pandemic? I mean, there's numerous difficulties that you and I could talk about for hours, but just the idea of, of standing up to this. You've been doing it. Environmental groups have been doing it, but it's really difficult. You, you mentioned Zoom calls. It's it's difficult. Uh, an in-person protest, groups speaking at, at a town council or regional council have so much impact. They've stopped things uh, and prevented things like this before, and it's just not possible in, in, uh, in, in, the, in the midst of what we're dealing with right now, is it? No, you're absolutely right. And I've seen, uh, you know, let's use um, Bill 66, Section 10, which the province brought out last year, which we actually supported because, again, it, it could have some very valuable uses in cutting red tape and moving things forward. I think we're one of the only municipalities, Ajax, that supported it. The province had some very minor pushback on that and immediately withdrew it. But in this case, you know, I haven't seen pushback like this on anything no. 17 years in politics. But it was just going. And I have no problem with a fair fight. And I never back down from something like that. But in this case, every time they ran up against an obstacle, they changed the rules. And changing legislation and forcing the conservation authorities to enter into a compensation agreement is just ridiculous. I mean, you only get one chance at a wetland. And now I understand the province has come out with some funding. So they had no consultation with the CAs. Now they've come out with a task force to help the CAs understand the changes and understand this discussion for some money to redevelop a, another piece of property down south of there. I mean, it, it's, is the province going to pay for this now? Will the developer profits? I don't know. But it's just such a, such a ridiculous kind of thing that's happening here. And again, I follow the rules. The rules are put in place for a reason. The mm-hmm. rules have been there for a long, long time. The conservation authorities serve a very, very, very um, important part in the planning process. And to strip them of their, of their powers and just move forward is just wrong. Mayor Sean Collier, our guest uh, from the mayor of the town of Ajax, thanks for your passion and your advocacy for this. There's a reason also it's called the Durham region, and you know that. People in Ajax, not just the town, but Pickering, uh, Rouge, Whitby, they all use this land. They all appreciate this land. There's, there's a reason we all want to keep living where we're living, uh, you and me included, and it's uh, it's because of the appeal of it. So there's no doubt that uh, what you're doing is, um, is greatly, greatly appreciated, no matter how it ends up. It's been greatly appreciated by the residents. Well, we try. I mean, I was, I was criticized about being pro-development, which I am. Economic development is very important. But it is possible to have economic development, have growth, create jobs, and still respect the environment. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what I want the province to do as well. Okay. Uh, th- this Pat Bailey rink, uh, I need it expanded about 20 feet by 20 feet. I can't get on it. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, we knew, we knew that one was going to be very <laughs> want things to do when they get outdoors but we also have the lockdown to deal with so in my staff i just had a conversation with my ceo yesterday um i'm pushing for more outdoor rinks not ones where you have to sign up in advance because as we've seen that's a that's a kind of tedious process that is subject to abuse but we know pat bailey square is going to be busy so stay tuned there are going to be more rinks at McClinton. <laughs> i'm hoping for some down at waterfront maybe greenwood around town where people can go and get outside and get some fresh air and enjoy. Hey, it's awesome. I love driving past it because I, I love seeing people happy out there. And uh, you nailed it. We're, we're really limited in what we can do uh, indoors or outdoors. So uh, I, I just love seeing it as, uh, as full as it can be without broaching uh, safety. Thank you very much for doing this uh, and have a great new year. And I know we'll talk in 2021. Greatly appreciate it, Sean.
No problem at all. Thanks. Uh, there's Mayor Sean Collier from the town of Ajax. Okay, I want to read you something a, uh, a listener sent me. Andrea, thank you very much for listening. Andrea, send me this. Brady at 640toronto.com. And uh, she did it for comparative, um, for, you know, for, for a comparison between the mayor of Toronto's reaction to Rod Phillips. I'll read you first how he reacted. Remember the barbecue guy? Yeah, that guy. The guy wearing the, what's that called? That red and black lumberjack shirt? Lumberjack shirt, right? Why do I get that confused with Canadian tuxedo? That's the stupidest thing. They're totally different. Anyway, lumberjack barbecue guy, backwards cap, hoodie wearing barbecue man. You know, um, here's what he said. Here's what the mayor of Toronto said. The mayor said the situation was profoundly frustrating and disappointing. The disregard of the public interest was similar to that of people who repeatedly text and drive or drink and drive. There's only so much you can do with regard to those people, Tory said. Most people think about other people. They think about their fellow citizens. They think about public health. There are some that don't. This morning, when asked about Rod Phillips' Caribbean vacation, which was headed into week three before, and it was going to stay that way until the premier said, no, no, end the vacation and get home here. By the way, another listener, listeners bonding together today, did note, you can't get back direct from St. Bart's to, uh, to Pearson, uh, let alone Billy Bishop, okay? By the way, shout out to Porter Air. Can't wait to fly you again. I can't wait to fly, period, again. Um, that lounge, forget about it. But either way, here's his reaction. It's a mistake. I stand by my friends when they make mistakes. It's not about actions. It's the person. Remember, he compared a guy selling barbecue sandwiches to a guy who texts and drives or drinks and drives. There's only so much you can do with regard to those people. When it came to Rod Phillips, he's as hardworking and dependable a person as you'll find in public life. And quite frankly, we're lucky to have people like him. Again, again, think of the duality of this, okay? Think of the utter and complete hypocrisy. Think of what we're being asked to do. And by not condemning, by not condemning even the actions, not the person of the finance minister, the actions of the finance minister, he is thereby endorsing the actions of the finance minister. It's not that difficult a leap of logic to make. It really isn't. Joined now on the line by uh, Public Affairs VP at Hill and Knowlton Strategies. You know them well. Omar Khan joins us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Omar, thanks very much for making the time. How are you? No problem, and happy early New Year, I guess. It is that. Yeah, I know. We're, it's sort of like, a, like a, you, you think you can do a couple shows of season enders, and, uh, and it's going to be you know, a little quiet in the news cycle, and then some dude decides he needs some sunshine. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think what, what rankles most Ontarians, myself included on this, uh, is that a lot of us have actually made conscious decisions to follow public health advice and, and not uh, travel internationally. You know, I myself, I was scheduled to attend my cousin's wedding um, in the Middle East. We canceled that. Uh, my wife and I were, were hoping to s celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary in Scotland mm. this year. We cancel that. And, and, you know, I haven't seen my parents, my elderly parents who live in Ottawa. I live in Toronto. Um, you know, they call me every day telling me how lonely they are. But, you know, we made a conscious decision not to visit them either over the, over the Christmas period. Um, so, you know, the question is, if, if, if most Ontarians, and I do believe most Ontarians are following the rules, um, you know, why can't the second most powerful minister in the Ford government follow those rules? 
Yeah, and and I listen. I, I think the vast majority of our listeners, because you'll never get a hundred percent, you know, uh, unanimity on anything. I think the majority of our listeners are doing what you're doing, and they can uh, they they can feel empathy uh, for what your parents are are doing. I didn't see mine again. First Christmas ever that I don't see them at least part of the day on December twenty uh, fifth, and I'm lucky I can say that. Um, so yeah, I think you're right, and I think you nailed what what the, there's two aspects to Phillips doing this, and some of the other transgressions as well. And there have been politicians from different parties do it. But what I think happens, Omar, is one, it, you're telling people that th- th- that the lockdown and the restrictions that you're putting in place aren't significant enough and aren't going to change the, you know, change the game as much as as they're telling you that it will. And then there's the bigger fear to me is that, well, he's not taking the virus seriously, so it's not as serious as they're making it out to be. So I now will not take it seriously. And we can't have that. We're never getting out of this if that's the case. Well, and it's also the mixed messaging, right? We, we, we've seen the premier over the last number of days really rail against the federal government for lack of border controls. And, you know, he even went, went as far as to say that, you know, international travelers po- pose a, gr- a, a grave risk uh, with respect to the transmission of the virus in Ontario. Uh, and yet his own minister is, is traveling to uh, sunny St. Bart's. The other thing I'd point out is, you know, I, I used to be a chief of staff to several ministers mm. at Queen's Park. Uh, in a previous government. Um, It is unfathomable to me that a minister could leave the country for two weeks without notifying the premier or his office. Um, So I I understand that the premier came out yesterday and said uh, that he didn't learn about this trip until after the departure. I I think it it behooves the premier to step up and and let Ontarians know when exactly he did know uh, that this was occurring. Uh, and, And look, you know, the premier likes to say that the buck stops with him. It does. I, I think I think some action needs to be taken against uh, you know these types of activities because it does undermine Ontarians' confidence in the public health guidelines that the, that the, that the government is putting out. Omar Khan's kind enough to join us, Public Affairs VP at Hill and Knowlton Strategies. I want to get there, and I'm glad you did. Uh, Is there a slight percentage of a chance that, now I do not believe Doug Ford found out yesterday uh, when, you know, Brian Lilly put out Rod Phillips' first statement, which was, again, far from an apology, far from uh, an admission of wrongdoing, and had no, you know, no notation that he was coming home anytime soon, basically. Um, and, And again, he said he left immediately after after the 8th, and he didn't. That's now been revealed that he left the 13th. So it's full of some mistruths at the very minimum. I'm almost willing to accept Doug Ford didn't find out yesterday, but to your point, is there a scintilla of a possibility that he found out Phillips went on his own, Phillips didn't ask permission, and Ford didn't know about it in advance? And I ask that because I don't know how Ford could go to town on the liberals and the testing at the airport knowing his finance minister would have to fly back through that same very airport, Omar. Look, look anything's possible. I can just speak through my own experience. Uh, so I, I worked at Queen's Park for over a decade. Uh, and whenever a minister uh, was traveling outside of the province, uh, be it for personal uh, travel or for uh, business travel, uh, you know, for, 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 for government work, uh, the premier's office would be notified. If it was for government work, the premier's office would have to sign off on the travel outside of the province. If it was for personal reasons, uh, you'd still have to notify the premier's office because, look, <laughs> they want to know how they can reach a cabinet minister uh, if they need to. Uh, and particularly, I just can't imagine how notification wouldn't have been given 
given the fact that we are in a global pandemic and more than 2,000 Ontarians are testing positive every day. Is it possible that he didn't know? Yes. Uh, I find it hard to believe that nobody in his office knew, though. I, I find, and I, yet I, find, I, I agree with that. I agree. I think it's far more than a 80% chance. I'm just, I'm opening the, the door just a smidge to say maybe there's a possibility Phillips thought he could cover this up on his own. And that gets to the social media aspect. And I get it. A lot of people have no time for social media. Hell, there's there's parts of the day I wish I had no time for it, but you do what you do. And and I do wonder the, the, the covering of the trail, all the elaborate videos, the visiting stores, and, and it's been revealed he's doing a lot of it, wearing the same sweater on supposedly different days. Beyond that, that that makes it look so schemed, and, and it's not exactly a coincidence or surreptitious. Well, the other thing is the government had a number of cabinet meetings between December 13th, which is the day Philip said he left the country, and December 21st, which is the day that the, prov- that the premier announced the province-wide lockdown was coming. Um, so did they not notice that he wasn't there, or <laughs> maybe he was zooming in with like a different background, maybe the same background? My camera's not working, Omar. My camera isn't working. Damn it, the know. damn camera. I, I, again, there were several cabinet meetings, uh, yeah. and there were cabinet me- these were meetings where the lockdown was discussed. So I don't know. Um, it, it, I find it hard to understand how they couldn't have known that he wasn't in the country. What, tell, tell us from your expertise, Omar, what does a premier weigh in terms of political capital? Maybe the next election's a, a, a couple years away. We know the other parties are gearing up and nominating candidates and, and getting word out there. But does Doug Ford say, I, I, I still have some... They, I, I said this earlier to Steve Pakin of TVO. I think if, if you get the vaccines and handled properly... We're all going to be feeling a lot better. The sun's going to be shining a lot brighter on us by May and June. We all know that. If you get the vaccines right, a lot of what went wrong will be forgotten, but but not in the case if, if you don't make anybody accountable. So there's a there's a pound of flesh aspect to this. Doug Ford has to weigh, regardless of friendship, regardless of relationships and respect. And if he truly didn't know, he's got a big, big call to make, keeping him finance minister or not, doesn't he? Well, look, the, let's go back in history a little bit. So the premier had a really rough first year in office, mm-hmm. uh, you know, particularly because of some of those patronage uh, scandals associated with his previous chief of staff. And, and the reason those really hurt his brand was because they did go really against the grain of the brand that he was trying to put forward as the, as, as the everyday man, you know, fighting, fighting for Ontarians, fighting for taxpayers. Uh, he, his popularity has recovered. Um, you know, in the last year since the onset of this pandemic, uh, I'd say largely because he has been able to demonstrate, uh, you know, uh, uh, emotion and caring through his daily press conferences. Um, But something like this, again, it really goes to the core of his brand. Um, You know, the the notion that um, somebody who who holds a position of power doesn't necessarily have to follow the rules that everybody else does. Uh, and I suspect that's why he came out as aggressively as he did yesterday, you know, essentially, um, you know, ca- uh, not yeah. condemning the actions, but making it pretty clear that he wanted to disassociate himself with them. Uh, but a lot of, as I said, a lot of questions remain to be answered. You know, did he know in advance? If not, when did he know? Also, you know, there, you mentioned there's no direct commercial flights between Toronto and St. Bart. <laughs> so how did he get there? Uh, did he fly commercial? If he flew commercial, where did he do a layover? You know, all of these questions remain to be answered. 
um, and uh, it's definitely not a good look. Really quick, uh, if 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 Ford knew, you've got to think there's an email or, or paper train to some extent. That's what that's what makes it harder to, to cover things up clearly than it, than it was 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, look again. What I would have done um, when I was holding a chief of staff position would have been to uh, uh, to notify the premier's office. Uh, the, here are the dates, and this is where the minister will be. To be honest, uh, when I was there, the premier's office would have proactively, before the holidays, uh, sent out a message to all chiefs of staff asking uh, them to uh, clarify the whereabouts and contacts of, of all the ministers yeah. uh, over the holiday period. That, that would just be standard practice. Hey, Omar, great pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for doing this day before New Year's. I hope you have a great New Year's Eve, and, and we'll talk in 2021. Really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, that uh, is Omar Khan. He was joining us, of course, P- Public Affairs Vice President at Hill and Knowlton Strategies. All right, waiting for uh, to speak with uh, Dolly Bigham. Uh, she is the MPP for Scarborough, uh, and uh, she's on her way in. Well, Scarborough Southwest, I should clarify. Uh, more of your calls in the meantime. Uh, let's go to Chris in Havelock. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for waiting through the break. We appreciate it. Go ahead. Hey, no problem. Uh, you're, you're doing a good job today. Thank you. Um, I think you're you're right on point with things. Now, just to get uh, brief, I know you got a lot of calls. Um, I moved out uh, to Ontario from BC about 17 years ago, and 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 whatnot. Now, my uh, my nephew um, came down with a massive stroke, and he lives in Kelowna. Um, I could have very well flown out to BC um, and been there with my sister, but the whole family said, no, we got to be smart about this. So I stayed back and, and couldn't be there with my sister while my 26 year old nephew passed away. Oh, for God's and, sake. Right, I'm so sorry. Hear, I thank you. And, and to hear this Phillips, I mean, the fact that I'm doing this without swearing profusely, it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's really, uh, it's impressive. But you know, to hear something like that, it, it, it really makes me like, infinitely angry and and the trust level with the government i mean i didn't really have any to begin with but this is just i mean you know and i mean i'm sure i'm not the only um case here i mean obviously there's people dying with covid um every two minutes or whatever it is worldwide or more than that but um you know that's just my story on yeah it. i'm i'm so sorry and and i but you know what i i thank you for what you did and i would tell you that uh you lost your nephew your nephew would have absolutely understood Everyone is having some level of understanding, and we're we're pushing through this again. If anything tells us, like what's going to be difficult after this? Honestly, what's going to be difficult after this year? Uh, yesterday, a protest uh, at the long-term care center in Scarborough. Uh, this is our next guest uh, riding. She is the uh, early learning and child care critic and a deputy opposition whip for the New Democratic Party of Ontario. Uh, and we're very pleased she's taking a few minutes uh, to join us. Dolly Begum, uh, our guest. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. First of all, um, you know, in the opposition party, it's it's your job to be critical. It's your job to shadow. Um, I would say what the finance minister did yesterday, um, I'll be honest, makes uh, your job and the NDP's job and the Liberals' job very, very easy. And sometimes it's not. Tell me what your reaction to this uh, this trip was from the finance minister of our province who handles our province's finances. Well, Greg, I, I got to tell you, it's, it was it was careless, selfish, on so many levels. 
Uh, and I hope, and I, I really hope that Premier Ford just does not let him off the hook for this because that's what he's done in the in the past. Mm. We've seen him do uh, that with Sam Oosterhof in the past. Um, and, and just the fact that, you know, it looks like when the Premier comes in front of the cameras and gives, you know, talks about guidelines, the rules don't apply to his own members of his government. Uh, and, and what the minister did, I think there's two things that I got to say. One is that he's provided zero support for the province, small businesses, people who have been struggling throughout the past months and months. Uh, and now he's going to come back. It's going to be on tax dollars for 14 days. Um, and, and he's enjoyed this vacation while people over the past you know, months and months have been struggling. And the other thing that, that I'm really frustrated with is just like you said, yesterday I was at a protest and there are people yeah. dying right now. Meanwhile, we have the Minister of Finance on vacation. I mean, the the I mean, people are outraged, people are angry, people are scared. Uh, so I really hope Premier Ford does not let him off the hook for this. Yeah, there's the optics and there's the reality uh, of it. You you go to Tender Care Living Center yesterday. There were more deaths there. What was your reaction to the Minister of Long-Term Care describing the situation at Tender Care as quote unquote stable? Oh, it was it was it was shocking. It was extremely disappointing. Um, you know, I was there with, um, and, and that morning we heard it was 43 residents who have died. Mm-hmm. By the afternoon, I heard that it was 48 residents, uh, over 100 positive cases. We have many staff in that home who have tested positive as well. So I joined so many family members who have lost loved ones and, and are, were afraid that they will lose more people in that home. And, and some of them don't know the conditions of their you know, loved ones, of their parents, grandparents. I met one family member who, uh, whose mom uh, is having a hard time breathing. She, they just found out the day before that she has caught COVID. Um, and they, they're, they're frightened. They're just so worried about her conditions. They don't know what kind of treatment she's getting, if she's okay. Uh, just not being able to you know, see and, and, and hear from her um, has been so tough and, and no clear communication. Um, and it, the, the fact that it didn't have to be this way and hearing the minister say that everything is fine, everything is not fine. And it was just so disappointing because, uh, because the minister has had months and months to prepare. And I would go as far as the fact that this is elder abuse. And that's what family members were saying yesterday. The inaction by this government is elder abuse. And this minister has failed, and she has tried, in fact, to deceive public by stating that everything is under control when it's not. When it's not. I I got about 90 seconds, and here's what I will say. I I think schools, and and you might disagree with me, I think schools have been a win. We needed to get kids into school. I knew there'd be some spread. I think the government is not being honest about the spread that's in schools for asymptomatic kids bringing it home. But I'm going to call it, I'm I'm personally going to call it a win. I don't ask you to agree with me, but here's where I think you will. The, the emphasis on schools was such a priority in August. Spend this money. Let's get some new ventilation in. Let's make sure we've got more janders. Let's make sure this and that. Why weren't any of those resources split with long-term care over the last four months? We, we care about our kids, and we should. Shouldn't we care about the people who are their grandparents? Well, you know, I, I could tell you a lot more about schools, um, and when we have time, I will, mm. because there's a lot of things we could do to make sure that the community spread that has caused by the failure in the reopening of schools could have been prevented. As yes, well. yes. $12 billion this government is sitting on, they can spend I know, a portion of that to help seniors in many of these homes. In March, April, May, we had the exact same situation that's happening right now. And after eight, nine months, 
we're seeing the same problems and the minister is failing to act. They could have had staffing levels increased. They could have infection prevention uh, control measures in place. And they could have made sure that, you know, if we need more support, like the military, like the Red Cross, which is what families are asking for. That's right. They could have called for those support as well. Yeah. Uh, NDP MPP for Scarborough Southwest. We got to leave it there. Dolly Begum, thank you for being there yesterday. I want to say that, first of all, I think the residents would have appreciated it. And uh, and I hope we get to talk much, much more in the new year. Uh, Thank you very much. Good luck in 2021. Thank you, Greg. Happy holidays. Dolly Begum uh, joining us.